Welcome to another episode of the Detox Podcast, a culture and conversation podcast where you can detox from the world around you and get a window into how other people live their lives. Come detox with detox. I'm your host, Joe Sean. On today's episode, I had the absolute pleasure of speaking to award-winning author Deborah Hopkinson. Uh, Deborah is an incredible author who's written a phenomenal amount of books. Um, specifically, on the show today, we talk about Cinderella and a Mouse Called Fred, Small Places Close to Home, uh, The Plot to Kill a Queen, and the Trim book series Trim Set Sail and Trim Helps Out. Incredible, incredible books all around. And Deborah and I get into a conversation about how she started out writing, uh, what drew her to uh, these particular stories, um, some of the things that you should be aware of about um, uh, your local libraries and your school libraries and how we can continue to get uh, more representation within the schools and and help with uh, getting wonderful authors such as Deborah uh, to these visits um, to be able to share the stories with our kiddos. So it's a fantastic conversation. I think you're absolutely going to love it. Before we get there, I do want to let you know that today's episode of the podcast is brought to you by Empire Toys. Nostalgia is something everyone loves, and Empire Toys in Keller, Texas is on nostalgia overload. With toys and action figures from the 70s, 80s, 90s, and today, Empire Toys is a one-stop shop for a trip down memory lane and a chance to reclaim what was once yours, but likely sold at a garage sale. Check out Empire Toys on Facebook, Instagram, or at TheEmpireToys.com. And by Self Unbound. Your quality of life, physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually, is a direct reflection of the level of abundant energy, ease, and connection your nervous system has to experience your life. At Self Unbound, your nervous system takes center stage as we help unbind your limited healing potential through network spinal care. Access the first steps to your Unbound journey by following us on Facebook, Instagram, or at www.selfunbound.com. Now, without further ado, my episode with Deborah Hopkinson is right up after this. Oh, and before we get started, I do want to just call out real quick that Deborah has a beautiful and wonderful dog named Rue. And for a little bit of the episode, Rue decides that uh, they want to go ahead and make an appearance and share their opinion. So there's a little bit of barking at a certain point in the episode. Don't worry. It's all good. I just wanted to give you a heads up so you knew what you're listening to is uh, our secondary guest, which is Rue, the dog of Deborah Hopkinson. But it's only for a little bit. Anyways, enjoy the episode. Welcome back to the Detox Podcast with me at this time, author extraordinaire. I know that uh, I'm very excited for a couple books that are out that I've got to get my daughter and then also my son, uh, Deborah Hopkinson. Deborah, how are you doing today? I'm great. It's nice to be here. Thanks, Joe. You're welcome. Um, one of the things that I'm most excited about we're gonna we're gonna dig in, but the I'm gonna I'm gonna dig into in a moment about the variety of ages that you write for. And so you've got a couple books that are maybe a little bit more middle grade, and then you've got some books that are a little bit more um, uh, early elementary. And I know that my kids have really enjoyed reading your work. And so we'll dig into that in a moment. Uh, but before we do that, here at the Detox Podcast, I like, to, well, I like to invite people to quote unquote detox from the world around them and uh, spend the next 30, 45, 50 minutes, whatever, uh, getting a window into how other people live their lives. And so I like to start every episode by asking my guest a question. And Deborah, I'll start by asking you, 
Um, what are you currently, I'm using air quotes here, detoxing from? Well, um, I guess I would say um, I don't like to go grocery shopping. <laughs> so <laughs> so um, what I love to do is grow things in my garden. So, But we're at the time of year where in Oregon, where I live, where although today was a beautiful fall day, um, I have a few celery plants and a few hanger on tomatoes, but it's time to go back to the grocery store for, you know, all those, the wonderful produce that we get to have in the summer. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> you know, I, I'm down here in Texas and it finally feels like fall, uh, which is crazy to say to me. Um, so I, we were having a hundred and degree weather all the way up until just a few weeks ago. And it was, it was funny. I took a trip to Miami this past weekend and it was warm and hot and muggy there as well. And then I returned to fall weather. So I don't really know uh, what, I guess I had to leave to come back and appreciate it. So I, I, I hear you on there. I think what I'm currently detoxing from, uh, you know, you bring up grocery stores and what's, what I think is interesting to me, this is a little tangentially, I would say, related to what you're talking about, is that in the pandemic, I found that so because of uh, necessity, so many habits changed. So for instance, for me, I was somebody that always had to go into the grocery store and, and go all the way through the aisles and see, and I had my list, but I still got to go through everything, got to do it. This is the, this is the way it is. This is the way it was. Um, COVID comes, not, you can't really do that. You got to, if you're going in, you got to be in and out. And usually what I ended up doing is doing the, the drive up uh, to the car, the pickup and groceries and all that. And I found I liked it so much more because uh, I got a lot more time back in my day. So what I, I build my groceries throughout the week, I look at my recipes, I get everything going and then I'll order it uh, and then pick it up on Sundays. And then if I don't have anything, I'll re realize that I'll go into the store later and, and pick up one or two items. But I think what I, all of that to say is I'm detoxing from the feeling of needing uh, that I have to always do things one particular way and invite the fact that there might be a more efficient way to do it, which gives me back more time in my day, which I can use to do more things that I love, which is talking to wonderful people like you, to walking them down the aisle. Well, you know, for writers and for me as a writer, um, the very first weekend of lockdown, which was March 10th or 13th, um, I realized that um, my only social life usually is going to um, to my garden or to my wonderful gym, which is Bay Club here in Portland. And I lost that. And my daughter said she thinks I'm probably the only person that really got a lot out of the pandemic because I wrote like a thousand pages. <laughs> Um, but I missed it, even though I may not socialize or have a big social life or get to go to conferences very often. I missed going to schools and talking to real kids, yeah. although you know, I do talk to them on on virtual visits. But my first school visits since the pandemic were just last spring. And then I'm going this um this in November to um, California to a school visit. And I realized what I really miss is kids coming to me afterwards where they're maybe too shy to ask a question during the big session, yeah. but there are these history nerds or kids that just want to give you a hug. And um, that's what I miss about my gym because I have a gym, a health club that has lots of kids 
every, everywhere from babies to, you know, I'm a grandmother and people older than me. So I'm, I really just miss that personal contact. And as much as I spend my time right now, I'm writing a new book with another one coming after that. It's, it was that sort of that everyday life, just chatting with the person at Starbucks or wherever it is um, that makes you feel a part of a community. Yeah. Do you find it was something that you, you mentioned that I want to go back to and you're talking about the sense of, of having that sort of that uh, almost repetition, the, the pattern, right? And then connecting with the community and even though not necessarily socializing uh, a lot, still having that nor- that uh, reg- regularity. Did you find that your, um, from a writing standpoint, did you find that you would normally get sort of work out a lot of ideas as you were going through that routine throughout the course of the day? Um, I get a lot of ideas and I always tell kids, um, you know, students when I talk to them in school that um, like being a writer is like um, having like a little butterfly or a bug that has an antenna up. Um, But even when you're not writing, you could be thinking about it. So a lot of times I get ideas like driving, like on the way to the gym or something will happen to me. So even when you're not writing, you're sort of holding like a writing problem in your brain. Mm -hmm. And um, that happened, that happened was harder for me during the pandemic when I was just sitting here. Sometimes I would just get up and take a shower because um, if you've, if you've ever been in a situation where you like can't remember someone's name and then suddenly it pops into your brain, yes, it's almost like your cells in your brain are working um, even though you're not thinking about it. And then suddenly they land on the right answer. And writing is a lot like that. I studied um, Zen as a young woman and I met my husband there and um, holding a, a, a Zen cone on your head is pretty much the same. You hold it. It's like a practice and writing is very much practice for me. Okay. That's very well said, very beautifully said. So thank you for sharing that. Um, I want to go back and talk about a little bit of your background writing. So when did you first start or I guess maybe what drew you to regularly creating stories and then how did that evolve into the career that you have today? So one of the things about my writing career is that I worked full time um, up until 2014. Um, I wanted to be a writer from the time I was in fourth grade. And what again, what I always tell students at author visits is that maybe you want to be you know, on the Olympic soccer team or the World Cup soccer team or play the piano at Carnegie Hall. But you're not really sure that you're going to get there. So you, but doesn't mean you have to stop doing what you love. And for me, I had a full-time career in philanthropy. So I raised funds for universities and college, scholarships and buildings, libraries, but I kept writing on the side. And eventually when my daughter was born, when she was three, I'm like, if I don't like start sending stuff out, it's never going to happen. Right. <laughs> and so I began sending out stories and it took me like five years after that point to sell a book. But then it wasn't until many years later that I actually began to work full time as a writer. So you can do things on the side, whether it's playing the piano or, um, sports or whatever it might be. So don't give up your dream, even though your dream may change a little bit. 
I really like what you said because, you know, I, it's so interesting to me when I seem to have some of the same conversations that crop up in my life and in, in rapid succession, right? I think that's always the universe trying to tell you something, whatever you want to believe that to be. I was having this almost exact conversation with, with, a, with a friend the other day, and we were talking about the fact that, or I was sharing how when I grew up and my undergrad degree is in theater, when I grew up, I would have a lot of actors come and speak to my, my acting class. And they, they would constantly say, like, what did you do? How did you know you were going to make it? Like something generic right? like that, right? And so usually I, <laughs> I always laugh when I think about who the actors are because I know them still today. They would say something like, oh, I didn't have a backup plan. I just went with my suitcase to Broadway. And this one guy always would say, Broadway, would, he would always emphasize <laughs> the way. Um, and so he was just like, that's it. And I was, I as a young kid was like, ooh, that seems really scary to not have anything that you're doing and this is it, make or break it. I'm like, <sighs> I don't know about that. And so I would put off to the side. Now, when I talk to uh, my theater friends, I was speaking to one the other day who is on and off Broadway, as as it were, um, he gave a talk to students and he said very much what you're saying of, hey, I had this other career and I was also acting and then something worked out. And so I left that role at the time. The tour ran. It was great. It ended. I didn't get another role for a while. I took my bachelor's degree and my background in the corporate world, got another job doing something comparable with program management. And it worked out. And I did that for a while and that was fun. And then I still, he said, I did both. And I was able to use one to help the other until such a time as he had more stable work. And so I think it, it feels like to me a lot of our thoughts about how we can practice our dreams and our careers and really get successful is is evolving because we understand that you know our, our lives are in chapters. And we're talking about books here, right? And so one chapter can be one thing versus another one. We also live in a celebrity culture. My daughter oh, was also um, yes. a theater person and she is now a Waldorf school teacher, um, but she produces plays with her students. And for my book that comes out on October 17th, The Plot to Kill a Queen, which is dedicated to Rebecca. Um, it takes place in 1582, Elizabethan England and Will Shakespeare has a cameo role. Um, she was here this summer in Oregon from Vermont where she lives. And we recorded some of the back matter together. So, you know, Partly it's that she also was uh, learned violin. She also was a great softball pitcher and she does those things. So I think it's more to encourage young people to try things, yeah. but not to feel as though you're a failure because you're not Simone Biles or, right. uh, you know, <laughs> um, that you have a life and your life can be very full and rich in ways that you may not imagine, you know, that's outside of celebrity culture. Yeah. Well said. I want to talk about the, the amazing amount of books that you've had coming out this year. I mean, there's, there's so many, we've got Cinderella Mouse called Fred, uh, Small Places Close to Home, A Child's Declaration of Rights, inspired by the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, Plot to Kill a Queen, which you just mentioned, uh, the Adventures of Trim series. Um, Let's start, I want to I start with Cinderella and a Mouse Called Fred. So 
my kids really love that book. They're really, really enjoying it. Um, and I would say the first time we read it, it was interesting sort of the the different spin on, on a few things. And we really <laughs> like that. So talk to me about sort of your idea to write Cinderella and a Mouse Called Fred and then um, any interesting uh, stories that you have about it. Well, I do have some interesting stories. So <laughs> Cinderella and a Mouse Called Fred, I'm, I'm a romantic at heart um, in my... If I'm on an airplane, I will download a, a romance to read. And one of my favorite romance movies is Ever After with yes. Drew Barrymore. Oh. And what I love about so that good. is that it's um, it's set in rural um, pastoral France. And I'm a gardener. Um, not a great gardener, but I'm a gardener. <laughs> and so my first attempt, and I, again, I always tell kids at schools that I rarely get a book right the first time. So my very first attempt was um, a Cinderella story from the point of a pumpkin. And that didn't work out. And so then I sat down and I tried again. And this one is called Cinderella and a Mouse Called Fred. And I wrote it, I think, around 2019. Um, and I have a, a, one of my kids is gay. And I didn't think anything of it. Cinderella, there's a queer ending on in Cinderella. And... Paul Zielinski, who's a Caldecott medalist, is the illustrator, and he dedicated it to his daughter and her wife, and he has a grandson about the same age as, as my grandson, Oliver, who's seven. Um, but it came out in August, and it's probably one of the funniest books that I've ever written, and also my first book with talking animals, and it's very silly. Um, and uh, Fred, who's the mouse, gets turned into a horse, and doesn't quite like it very much. Um, and <laughs> right. in the end, Ella or Cinderella uh, grows a pumpkin from one of the seeds from the pumpkin coach <clears throat> and wins a prize at the fair. And she beats out a young farmer who falls in love with Ella just as she is. And Ella loves her right back. Well, come to find out, I was scheduled to go to several appearances in Ohio, uh, Ohio and Indiana, and I had my invitations rescinded because of this book. Wow. So it's um, it's a good this last week. So we're talking in October, but the first week of October is Banned Books Week. Yeah. And although we we know that there's official banned books, there's also what's happening across the country, which is sort of unofficial censorship. Yeah. And that's basically what happened to me. Um, I wasn't even going to talk about the book. I was going to talk about The Adventures of Trim and sure. some other books that I have coming out, but it didn't make any difference. My, and one of them was the public library. So we put our trust in public libraries, yeah. um, but people across the country um, are finding um, it really challenging to deal with um, with the protests that are coming up um, about books. Yeah. Um, and so it's sort of ironic to me that I'm publishing Cinderella and Small Places Close to Home in the same series because right. um, that's about the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. So um, it's, it, it's a, a difficult time, I think, for educators and for um, librarians um, across the, and parents too. It's, it feels very difficult, both from a 
author perspective when you're trying to write books that allow kids to feel seen and and be able to have something that is has not existed before, or at least not existed in this particular way. And it's not, you know, it's so, it's troubling to me as a parent when these, when I hear these types of stories and I see the, like when I, about invitations being rescinded specifically is what I'm talking about. Right. Um, and it, it, it underscores to me the importance of talking about the work and and being able to have the work out there and raise visibility for it because the more that we have people buying the book, sharing the book, talking about the book and having it in the libraries, the more that we start to show that we are here and we want to be represented and we want to have the conversations and we want to make sure that all kids get to grow up feeling seen and get to be whatever they want to be, whether that's an author, whether that's a violinist, right? Whether that's a theater teacher, whatever. Um, and it's a shame. And that word does not feel strong enough, but it's a shame when these types of situations with libraries rescinding invitations because of an ending of a children's book continue to happen across the country. Um, thank you for sharing that. I uh, want to also, you mentioned small places close to home. So talk to me about um, obviously it's the anniversary, the 70, 75th, right? Do I have that right? Anniversary. Um, and I don't remember exactly, you know, I'm kind of a history nerd and, um, I think that anniversaries are helpful for, for young people to, um, to put milestones, um, to understand, to develop a sense of historical context. So, um, in 2012, I wrote a book about the Titanic, which was a cyber honor, which was the 100th anniversary. Because for young kids, like, you know, anything, you know, um, five years ago is like ancient history. So, um, so it takes a long time to develop historical context. And so the 75th anniversary of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was 1948, December 10th. And every year... Um, we celebrate Human Rights Day on December 12th. And um, Eleanor Roosevelt, the story behind it is sort of fascinating. She, of course, in 1945, um, Franklin D. Roosevelt died and she left the, the White House and uh, thought that her life was pretty much over, at least her public life. She was only 62 at the time. Yeah. Um, and then she got a call from President Truman asking her to be in the first delegation for the UN. And uh, she ended up being on the committee to, to draft the first Declaration of Human Rights. And when I set out to write about this book, I, I first thought that I would do a history and it didn't seem quite right. So the book itself um, is, I decided to make it, more like from a, a child's uh, declaration. So it starts out um, a, with a little bit of begin, before you begin, which tells the story. Um, and it starts out with me. I am part of my family and the human family. I was born free and equal, like each and every other person in the world. I deserve to live in freedom in a just and peaceful place and to be treated equally and fairly, no matter what I look like, how I speak, dress, or wear my hair, who I love or where I love. And it's up to me to respect the rights of others to do the same. 
So it goes through the section of me, my school and community, and my country and my world. And throughout, of course, this year and almost every other year, we are continually faced with challenges in the, the world of human rights. Yeah. Um, but uh, Eleanor Roosevelt is the one who said, you know, where, after all, do human rights begin? They begin in small places close to home. Yes. Oh. Well said. What has been the reaction? Uh, well, that's coming out. Uh, no, it, it is out October third. Yes, October third. Yeah, um, the seventy fifth anniversary is later this year, and specifically December tenth. Yeah. Yep. What has been the reaction um, of the? What has been the reaction for you um, since Small Places has come out? What's been some of the feedback you've received from readers? Um. I have had a couple of, um, of folks uh, who teach um, teachers, so educators who um, talk about um, trying to um, spread the word for people who are doing courses for what they're called pre-service teachers. So um, I haven't yet shared it with students and I'm looking forward to doing that. Um, next month I'll be in um, Ohio and I'll be in California and I'll get to see some real kids. So that's always, that's always fun. I, um, but I'm hoping that teachers and educators will use it not just for elementary school, school students, but also for middle school students um, with the challenge of developing um, a writing activity to develop your own idea of what um, a declaration of human rights uh, means to you. I like it. I like it. I really like the way you've started it too, because it grounds everyone in what's important and how at the end of the day, we do all have, or we should have rights because of who we are as an individual and that we all have our own hopes and dreams and, and things that we care about and people that we love. And we are trying to chart our own way forward um, and it is, it is a shame when, when that's not always the case. So I really like the way that you've laid it out uh, right at the beginning of the book. And I should say for listeners, um, if you have a chance to look at it, the illustrator is Kate Gardner, and she is a, a member of the Nipmuc, Nipmuc Indians. She grew up in Connecticut, lives in Maine, and this is her debut, and she awesome. is an amazing illustrator with a bright future ahead of her. And um, this book is on the Mock Haldicott from Anderson's bookshop. Um, and she, she just did a, a beautiful job. It's a very peaceful book. Yes. Beautiful imagery. Oh my goodness. So, well, uh, I'm just going to say it right now. So if you're listening to this, just pause the episode Go buy uh, Cinderella and a Mouse Called Fred. Go buy Small Places Close to Home, A Child's Declaration of Rights Inspired by the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Um, well, heck, just go, buy, just go buy everything that Deborah's written, and then uh, you don't have to worry about which one did Joe say, which one are they talking about. Just buy all of them. I'll wait. Or borrow from your library. There it is. Okay. <laughs> Even better yet, buy copies for your library. Have some at home as well that you can share, right? I mean, more the merrier. There's lots of great free libraries that are popping up all over the, the places. So, um, but yeah, so go get that and then come back. All right, I'm glad that you've done that. Now, um, 
I want to talk about the plot to kill a queen. I know that, like I, like I mentioned before, um, uh, my daughter is very, very eager uh, to read this one. And so I've got this uh, coming uh, in the mail. But talk talk to me about, and she's right there, right? She's eight years old, going on nine. She's like perfect. Uh, she's read Harry Potter one, two, and three. And that's it. Okay. Um, and she's still in this phase where, like, she acts like she's, you know, eight going on 18. Um, but then also, right. like, if you if she reads the word, like, and someone bled, she's like, oh, still a little squeamish. And we're like, all right, well, you can. She's like, why can't I finish reading Harry Potter and read other stuff? I'm like, because of this reaction that you gave right here. So eventually she'll be fine. Um, but she's very excited for this book. And I'm very excited for her to, to get to read it. So talk to me about, um, one, what was your, what initially drew you to this topic to write about it? And then um, I know you've written, we've talked about a couple different uh, books that you've written that are geared more towards uh, early elementary. So what uh, was the decision to write this as a middle grade book? Well, I've written several middle grade uh, fiction with uh, uh, male characters. Um, my One of my first professional jobs was as the marketing director for the um, Manoa Valley Theater in Honolulu, where I got my master's degree. So my daughter, who's a theater person, I think probably got it because that's where I was working when sure. she was born. Um, and the plot to kill a queen. And also, um, I was very fortunate to be part of a, um, uh, if anyone has heard of Six, about the wives of Henry VIII, I was part of a, uh, a young adult um, historical fiction called uh, Fatal Throne. And I got to be oh. the last wife, which was Catherine Parr, with six different authors, um, plus Tobin Anderson as the king. And uh, very fun to do. Um, and my wife, Catherine Parr, was the stepmother to Elizabeth I. And then one day in the Atlantic, I came across an article that said, was Shakespeare a woman? And it was a profile of a woman named Amelia Bassano uh, Lanier, who was a contemporary of Shakespeare. And um, I thought, well, this would be a very cool book. So the plot to kill a queen kind of brings in my own like love of theater. Um, I worked in this very small theater that was set in a graveyard in Honolulu um, and where we did everything. When I got there, very many years ago, um, I had to like call up a board member to get a typewriter. So it was very much, <laughs> very much like, you know, on the ground. Yeah. And the plot to kill a queen, Amelia is 13 and goes in disguise to see a play and meets Will Shakespeare. And if anyone has ever watched um, uh, The Last Kingdom, uh, yes. you may have heard uh, that's set in King Alfred's time. And um, when Amelia meets Will Shakespeare at this performance, which is in a courtyard theater, she wants to be a playwright and enter a contest. And he gives her the idea of maybe writing about history. And so she decides to write a play about Ethelfled, who was King Alfred's daughter. So oh. the whole story of King Alfred and the cakes is something that all British kids learn. So the plot to kill a queen is in three acts. And it also includes a one act play that um, classrooms can perform for free um, at the back of it. And that play is called The Princess Saves the Cake. So it's a, it's my 
It's my truly feminist book. I grew up reading uh, Jane Austen and I read Charlotte Bronte. And although I've written lots about boys because my son was a reluctant reader and I always like to write about boy characters. Yeah. This is like my, this is the book that's closest to like who I am, who I am like a girl who wanted to be a writer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's also kind of Jane Eyre or Northanger Abbey a little bit because uh, Amelia gets sent with her dog, Rue, who you may have heard in the background barking, <laughs> to the castle, Sheffield Castle, where Mary, Queen of Scots, is being held. Um, she's being held captive. And uh, Amelia is um, a spy um, in the service of Sir Francis Walsingham, who was a Queen Elizabeth spy master. So it, anyone who like uh, watched Wolf Hall on PBS or um, anything like that, this is uh, sort of related that whole era and great fun. And um, I'm, I love the cover and I love, and along the way it has little, um, uh, definitions of, of theater terms. So for any kid or wannabe theater kid, this, this is the book. <laughs> I, that's so cool. I really like not only the, the shape of the book and how you've laid it out, but then also the fact that the adding the one act play at the end, like I'm geeking out about that. Like all of that together is just incredible. Um, what lesson uh, we've talked quite a bit about your books. Um, uh, what lessons do you want both parents and then young readers to get out of uh, some of your books? You know, um, a lot of my work, um, and I have some books coming out next year too in the same vein, is about developing historical thinking skills. Mm -hmm. And that seems kind of dry, but those one of those skills is close reading. The other one is contextualization corroboration and sourcing and young kids today, your kids, my grandson are growing up at a time when between AI and misinformation that they need these skills in order to make the kinds of really complex decisions relating to climate change, relating to social justice. And so, um, that's kind of like my goal, whether I'm writing nonfiction, um, or fiction is to really challenge kids to think for themselves, yeah. to tell their own stories, and also to, to look at context. So not just take things as they are given, but to, but to question. Yeah. It is so, I really, that's well said. I think one of the one of the things I remember when I was in school was don't use Wikipedia. Wikipedia is not a source. Go to the library and get your books, right? And now it's you bring up the sourcing and being able to suss out information. It's you've got so much information at your fingertips that you really do have to have discernment and understanding what is actual factual and what is AI generated and what is just complete misinformation. And it, it does require a very specific skill set. I, I like that you, you brought that up because it is, it is very needed, especially in today's society. I saw something the other day that talked about um, AI taking, it was, a, it was a company that was beta testing, um, taking a specific 
like celebrity person of a podcast and running all of their episodes through the AI and then crafting sentences that were said by that same voice, it would be like if I was talking, right? And then how do you know it's me versus an AI version of me? And then just scale that to, to books and articles and all kinds of stuff. You really do have to do an extra layer of due diligence to understand what is the origin of this particular piece of information. I want to talk before we close out. Um, we mentioned that you we had mentioned in passing the adventures of Trim series. So Trim sets <laughs> sail and Trim helps out. So talk to me about about Trim and uh, why readers should be excited about uh, picking these books up as well. I I just this is like the most fun that I've ever had. So I because I look because I have those antenna out as a storyteller. Sure. I somehow found, I don't know when or where, but I found the story of Matthew Flinders, who was a British explorer, who was the first person to map and circumnavigate, the first Westerner anyway, to circumnavigate Australia and actually gave the continent its name. And what I love about this story is that 1809, he wrote a tribute to a ship's, his ship's cat named Trim that was lost among his papers until 1971. And now if you look, there are statues of him at Euston Station and in Australia, there's a Flinders University. And so I had this, I, I, I'm a dog person and a cat person and we have canaries, but um, I thought, well, I've really, this is like such a great story. So I eventually was able to um, propose a series of early readers um, to Peachtree Publishing, and they do, uh, some of your listeners may know the King and Kayla books, which are, they're really fun mysteries for young yeah. readers. And so these are Christy Caldwell, who did a book of mine. Um, she's an illustrator. She did a book uh, on Frances Perkins, who was the force behind um, Social Security Act. Um, she did the art and it has talking animals, but it's set in 1800 or so. Um, and they're about 48 pages. Um, and what I really love is at the end, I'm able to do an author's note. And if you've read any of like, like, um, early readers for your kids, you know, that mostly they kind of look commercial or cartoony, which is great. Graphic novels are fantastic, but I wanted to right from the beginning, introduce young readers to genre. So the note for um, Trim Set Sail says, Trim Set Sail is a made up story about a real cat who lived in the past. We call this kind of story historical fiction. And one of the best things about Matthew Flinders is that when he was a, his, he was the son of a doctor, he was expected to become a doctor or a lawyer. He read Robinson Crusoe when he was a kid and decided to go to sea. So at the end of this note, I say, Matthew Flinders wanted to explore the world because he loved reading sea adventures when he was young. I'll read this story to my cat, Beatrix. I just hope she doesn't decide to run away to sea. What adventures will you have and write about? Oh, I love that. <laughs> so there's a picture as one of the statues of Trim and Flinders. And the idea, and I try to do this in all my, all my books, is that um, whether they're nonfiction or fiction, is the idea of telling your own story and telling your family's story. It's so, so important because 
for some of my books, unless someone had, unless Matthew Flinders had written his tribute to his cat, we would never know. Right. And, and, and so to, to really, to, to talk to your grandmother, your auntie, whoever it is, and write down your stories and keep them. Um, I have a picture book about Jane Austen. People, her, what she wrote as a kid is in the British library. So, so as a family, write down your stories, tell stories and share them. Oh, I couldn't say it better myself. That's <laughs> fantastic. Um, if people want to go uh, purchase all of these books, what's the best place for them to do that? Um, well, your local bookstore is always great. Um, and then you can go online on bookshop.org. And then, of course, you know, the major like Amazon and, and Barnes and Noble are also available. Um, Powell's, I live in Portland. Um, so and I always do encourage people to to support your local bookseller, because if we don't, they really won't survive. That's right. Well said. Well, Deborah, we are going to shift to the final segment of the episode. It is a segment I like to call Things to Check Out. It is where I recommend something to read, watch, and or listen to to the, the listeners. And I invite my guests to do so as well. So I'll go ahead and go first. So besides all of the wonderful books, uh, which folks I'm sure have already purchased all of them, both for themselves and for their library, um, what uh, a recommendation of something to read. I'm actually... Um, this is a bit of a guilty pleasure of mine. So I am uh, rereading uh, the Animorphs uh, book series. That was uh, by K.A. Applegate, or as she goes now, Catherine Applegate. When I read Animorphs, it was K.A., and that is how it's listed on the book. Um, that was a book series that really opened up my mind to world building within the sci-fi genre. I grew up watching Star Trek The Next Generation and a couple of other sci-fi shows, but Animorphs for me drew my love of animals and um, it was kids that were a little bit older than me so they were pretty cool when I was reading it and then uh, also science fiction all mixed in together and it was wonderful I was reading it because my daughter I was trying to screen it because she has a friend that was reading it and and so I looked and was like yeah I think this might work out and then I got sucked right back into the world uh, that I read oh so many years ago and so that's what I'm currently enjoying reading, uh, watching, I actually just uh, am in the middle of the Beckham documentary on Netflix. As I mentioned, I'm a soccer fan. And so I was like, all right, all of my soccer friends are going to be talking about this. I, I got to <laughs> watch it and check it out. Um, so far, so good. Uh, I enjoy it. I think it's a good watch. Check that out. And then listening to, uh, I got to plug my friend Natalie Price, who's a bit of an Americana singer, just released an album. And I need to get the name of it or else I'm going to, uh, she's going to be you know, uh, be like, why didn't you plug the name of my album? Um, but Natalie Price, I am now trying to stall while I pull up her album. Uh, Natalie Price, her album is, uh, is it just self-titled? I did all of this and it's just self-titled. Okay. Well, it's not just self-titled, but it is self-titled. So, um, so those are my recommendations. So Animorphs, uh, to read, Beckham, the documentary on Netflix to watch, and then Natalie Price, the self-titled album you can get on Spotify, uh, or wherever uh, to to listen to it. But Deborah, what is something for the listeners to read, watch, and or listen to? Okay, so to read, uh, so speaking of animals, um, Roseanne Perry, who is also from Portland, uh, readers might know A Wolf Called Wander. She has a new book out called A Horse Named Sky. It's about a Mustang. She did on the ground research and it's part of like a wilderness series and it just came out and I think it will be really marvelous for any kid that loves um, 
uh, books for book for other books for kids who love history. Uh, coming out in November is a book. Um, I can't think of the author's name, but it's called The Sky Over Rebecca. It's a time slip novel set in uh, Stockholm, also going back to uh, 1944. Um, to listen, well, I have to say I listen to books. So I'm right now listening to uh, the next book in the Thursday Murder Club series. Ooh. And also Anthony Horowitz, who writes the Alex Ryder series. and yeah. Or he's got these great metafictive books. Um, and the most recent is called The Twist of a Knife. Um, he plays himself as an author. Um, some of the other books, they go to an author's festival and he it's they're really funny. And the audio version is um, narrated by Rory Kinnear. And they're, they're actually they're funny murder mysteries. I love it. And then to watch, um, I have to say the most recent thing that I've watched um, because I'm kind of nerdy is uh, it's on BBC Select. And it's uh, Lucy Worsley, who's this amazing historian from Hampton Court Palace. And it's called Blitz Spirit, um, because my next book after this nonfiction book I'm writing on is takes is a is a novel set in the Blitz during ah. 1940. So, you know, writers, we always have to do our research. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Oh, I love it. Um, well, Deborah, if people want to follow you and see what you're up to, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, so I'm on uh, the internet is DeborahHopkinson.com and on uh, Twitter there's only one H between at Deborah Hopkinson because I ran out of characters and I'm also on Instagram and you can kind of find me there too. Perfect. Um, and usually if you follow me on Instagram you'll see lots of pictures of my dahlias. <laughs> I love it. Deborah, thank you so much for coming on the show today. This has been wonderful, and I hope listeners have gotten uh, one or two or many new favorite books uh, that they are quickly uh, picking up and, and reading. So thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me. It's so fun. <laughs> appreciate it. Well, listeners, you've been detoxing with Detox. Now go and make a more inclusive world. If you know of an interesting person or story that needs to be told, please reach out to me at detoxpodcast at gmail.com. That's D-T-A-L-K-S podcast at gmail.com. You can also reach out via Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at detoxpodcast or visit detoxpodcast.com. Also, be sure to leave us a five-star rating on iTunes if you like the show. It only takes a few seconds and it really helps us out. Link is in the show notes. Finally, thanks for listening. Please come back next week when we'll have another interesting conversation. And special thanks to my producers, Ben Lawant and Galan Aldaco. Without your help and support, this show wouldn't be possible. Thanks so much, guys. Detox is a production of Vocal. For more information and more programming, please visit vocalnow.com. That's V-O-K-A-L-N-O-W dot com. <laughs>